Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents, resources, and programs related to American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is John Moser. I'm professor of history and chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program here at Ashland University. Welcome to our third season of Documents in Detail, TeachingAmericanHistory.org's webinar series. In each episode, we'll be doing a deep dive into a single document, discussing the historical, literary, and rhetorical aspects of said document, while, while also analyzing its impact on American history, people, and thought. TeachingAmericanHistory.org is a project of the Ashbrook Center, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization based at Ashland University. We provide a variety of programs and resources for teachers of American history, government, and civics, all based on primary documents. In the next week or so, you will receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. The topics of this year's webinars are drawn from speeches, letters, and writings from the Ashbrook Center's voluminous document database available at TAH.org. And you too can participate in the conversation by typing your questions into the chat window at the bottom of your screen at any time. I will be frequently going to that uh, uh, to that window to see what questions are there, and I will convey them to our guests this evening. Speaking of those guests, the subject of today's program is the Anti-Federalist Tract Brutus One, and to help discuss it tonight are Dr. Todd Estes, Professor of History at Oakland University, and Dr. Jeremy Bailey, Professor of Political Science at the University of Houston. Jeremy, I should point out, is pinch-hitting this evening for Dr. William Allen, who is unfortunately unable to be with us tonight. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I want to, I want to start with a, a general question. Now, normally, the documents that we focus on in these series are things like the Declaration of Independence, uh, Federalist 10, the Gettysburg Address, the Monroe Doctrine, etc. Which might be uh, all placed under the heading of documents that have fundamentally shaped the way the country has developed. Uh, in other, another way of putting it is documents by the winners. <laughs> in this case, we have a document by one of the leading anti-federalists, uh, pseudonymously called Brutus One. Uh, Brutus is Melanchthon Smith, I guess most historians agree, um, but I think most of us would argue Melanchthon Smith is not up there with James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. Um, uh, without, I don't want to use the pejorative loser too much, but why look at uh, why look at one of the one of the, the the documents associated with a losing cause? in the debate over the Constitution and its ratification. Whichever one of you would like to take that. 
Well, I'll go first. Uh, I think if we're looking for a single document that encapsulates the anti-federalist arguments against the Constitution, it would probably be Brutus I. Uh, this is in many ways, it's a great essay because he lays out most of the key objections that he has to it and that many other writers do as well. But it also is the preface essentially for 16 Brutus essays that he's going to write between uh, October of 87 and April of 1788. And in this first essay, he very succinctly lays out a number of crucial arguments about what he thinks are the flaws and the weaknesses of the Constitution, the way this new consolidated government is going to threaten the liberty of the American people, uh, crush the states and do any number of things that we'll talk about as we unpack this tonight. And I think this is a document that comes out early in the ratification debate. It's published October 18th of 1787. So it's almost exactly a month after the Constitutional Convention has adjourned. Uh, it's as the uh, newspaper debate is really getting, getting ginned up. And this is a piece that appears early. It's not published that much in the papers, but it's circulated pretty widely uh, through private letter networks and things like that. Uh, and a lot of the key people read it, including Madison and probably um, his fellow uh, Federalist co-authors as well. So I think it's just a, it's a great document to look at. And if we're trying to find one key document that pulls together a lot of the anti-Federalist threads, I think this does it pretty well. Okay. Jeremy, would you care to add to or amplify any of this? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so the question uh, is, is why... Why, why study the losers? Um, so, so I'll give two reasons for that. One, one is that um, when thinking about the Constitution, it's really hard to understand the winning argument without understanding um, that which it's set itself against. And so it, it makes sense in, in this case to, to consider what the, not the other side was much, but but just what the what the concerns of the Constitution were, and Brutus Brutus was really the best uh, uh, at that. The second reason to say the losers would be is that um, Brutus it was remarkably perceptive uh, with respect to um, the likely operation of the Constitution, and in some respects, I think arguably Brutus actually is, is the winner, not the loser in the sense that his arguments uh, prove to be predictive. Uh, so Brutus um, has something to, to teach us, I think, um, and, and in the sense that he had the winning argument. Which documents in, this is for both of you, which, doc, which arguments in particular uh, do you think were the strongest and the ones that we ought to look back on today and think, well, maybe he had the better, the better part of this? Well, I think the, um, I guess the lead argument he makes here, and, and in some ways the one from which all the others flow, is his argument about consolidation, that this is a system designed in Philadelphia that's going to consolidate the nation into one large republic, uh, which he thinks, following Montesquieu, just simply won't work, can't work, hasn't worked, um, and he believes that's also going to be, over time, the key to taking away the powers of the state and the liberties of the people. And so I think the, the consolidation of this into one mass republic with a tremendous amount of power at the core of that government is for him, I think, his uh, sort of his key insight, because everything else he talks about, whether it's the powers of Congress, whether it's the uh, power of the judicial branch, whether it's the uh, in his last essay, 16, the absence of a, of a good separation of powers, everything else in many ways, I think, sort of flows from that um, the argument about consolidation. 
And that's sort of where he starts this essay off. Uh, and that's going to be, I think, running throughout all 16 numbers. Sure. Yeah, I agree with all that. Um, and I would say, uh, just to make give a concrete example, which, which, which Todd alluded to, um, take the argument about the necessary and proper clause. Uh, Brutus uh, foresees accurately that uh, the necessary and proper clause would become a gateway through which all sorts of powers would be implied towards the Constitution. And he uh, accurately, you know, you might say, gives the concern that later Jeffersonians give that, look, we don't have a Constitution. We've got um, the necessary and proper clause. All, all they need is three words to get whatever they want. Why have this whole constitution? Huh. Uh, let's step back and talk a little bit about the authorship. I had said originally that uh, uh, Melanchthon Smith is uh, is credited as having been writing under the pseudonym Brutus. Uh, one of our participants, Larry Fada, has suggested that uh, it might have been Robert Yates. Do either of you have any thoughts on this? Well, Yates had been for a long time um, listed as the, the primary author, either Robert or Abraham Yates. And for, for a time, that was uh, sort of the dominant uh, thought as to this. But um, there's been quite a bit of research in recent years. And probably the most recent uh, work on this authorship question has been by Michael Zuckert, who has, uh, I think, laid out a very persuasive case to my mind that Smith is, in fact, uh, Brutus. The question is, um, who wrote Brutus and who wrote Federal Farmer? And the authorship of those is not yet, is in either case settled. And Smith has been posited by some as the author of either or both of those. But I think in his most recent work on this, uh, it's a Liberty Fund publication, actually, I think called the Melanchthon Smith, the writings of the Melanchthon Smith Circle that looks at all the people around George Clinton in New York, uh, Smith and John Lamb and some others. And uh, he basically makes the argument that the best evidence suggests that Smith um, is probably the author of one or the other, and it seems more likely that he's the author of Brutus. And I think his one of his key points is that when you overlay the Brutus essays with the speeches that Melanchthon Smith gave in the New York Ratifying Convention later in 1788, they track extremely well. Hmm. Jeremy? Yeah, I'd agree with all that. Just, just the, the, that's exactly uh, the answer that I, that I would give, uh, looking at Zuckert's work. Um, it's a reminder just how um, uh, foreign this world of pseudonymous writing is to us. Uh, we, it's, it's hard to, to, in a way, relate to today, uh, given uh, the way that writers want to claim credit uh, for for their work. Uh, and it seems like most political actors, you know, can't can't be separated from a TV camera. So, so this is a reminder of just how, how what a different world it was. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about Melanchthon Smith? This is not a name that's likely to uh, come immediately to mind to most of our uh, most of our participants. Yeah, Jerry, go ahead. Yeah, uh, Todd, I think Todd Todd's doing work on this stuff, so he's going he's going to have a, a more extensive answer than me. I think the most interesting thing about Melanchthon Smith is that he gave the uh, the sort of the best arguments against the Constitution, both either as federal farmer or Brutus. Um, but also in, in, in the New York ratification debates. But he eventually uh, goes along with ratification on prudential or practical grounds, and that is that once the union is about to start, New York can't be outside of it. Mm. And so um, Lincoln Smith um, 
goes along with with, with union uh, based on on just the the, the movement of facts, uh, and he's, he's willing to, to to let his criticisms drop. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Smith is sort of the key New York anti-federalist at the convention because the anti-federalists have an enormous advantage of delegates elected to the New York ratifying convention. I think it's 46 anti-federalists to 19 federalists. So if everyone had voted according to how they were elected, there's no way it would have ratified. But obviously, as Jeremy notes, over time, um, it's clear that New York's choice is either to be inside the union or outside to sort of take what many of them consider to be a flawed constitution or try to do without. And Smith is one of the key figures, I think, for kind of bridging the gap. I think Smith from the anti-federalist side and John Jay from the federalist side are sort of the two key people who create a middle ground uh, of, of moderation in New York that make it possible for New York to ratify, which it does. Um, again, if, I, if my numbers are correct, I think they ratify by a vote of 30 to 27. So it's very close, but there's been quite a bit of movement. And I think uh, Smith is key for doing that. Um, but he pays a price for that because Smith um, really is uh, disowned by a lot of those Clintonian New Yorkers who were against the Constitution. Uh, I mean, obviously, George Clinton will come around and eventually be Jefferson's vice president. But there are a lot of others in that circle who don't forgive him for this and think that he still should have stood up and still should have opposed the Constitution, try to prevent, try to, to bring about a second convention. And so Smith um, does not find uh, too much political success in the new republic under the new government. And then um, I forget the year, I think maybe it's 1798, he dies uh, of one of the periodic yellow fever epidemics that swept through those big New York uh, or or big uh, uh, northeastern port cities. So this is in some ways the highlight of his career. And I think that's one of the reasons why, because of his early death and the fact he doesn't play a role in the new government, that um, that he's he's a, a fairly obscure figure. Todd, why didn't George Washington reward him for his virtue? Yeah, it's a great question um, because he does reach out to some people who are anti-federalists, but uh, Washington doesn't seem to know Smith, doesn't seem to have a lot of connections to him. uh, And a lot of the people that Washington does reach out to who had been at some point opposed to the Constitution uh, were Virginians that that he knew himself. So I think the personal connection really mattered with, with Washington and the absence of that mattered with, uh, uh, in terms of not getting Smith in somewhere. But he would have been, I think, uh, a great person to add. But doing so would have really infuriated the New Yorkers uh, in power in the state that Washington and the others in Congress uh, would have needed support from as well. Hmm. Um, Charles Beard, in the uh, beginning part of the 20th century, portrayed the battle over the Constitution as essentially one of of haves versus have-nots. Does Melanchthon Smith fit the description of a have-not? All right, so let me take a... I'll answer that question, not by by answering uh, about Smith's biography, but what about uh, Brutus says. Um, And that is, I mean, you could could basically think of... um, well, first of all, from the Beard's point, you could basically think of the contest as a contest between uh, Eastern urban dwellers and and, and Western uh, non-urban dwellers, and, and that that'd be something that that uh, Beard might be thinking about. But as far as Brutus, what Brutus does is he, uh, in a way, um, provides the kind of analysis. Um, that that maybe something like Beard himself would use in the sense that Brutus is 
and, and this is more trouble farming than brewers, but you see a little bit of Brutus too, where they're, they're, they're attentive to what they call the orders of society. Um, and they're attentive, um, which is to say suspicious of um, the way that the um, upper classes are going to take advantage of, of ordinary people. And so in that sense, they're bringing to the table a kind of older analysis uh, going back to antiquity that is thinking about the primacy of the social orders in a way that the Federalists are, are actually trying to overturn those orders and say they're no longer relevant in thinking about politics. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with what Jeremy said. That, that's very right. And to just point to one of the examples where we see it here in, in Brutus 1 of the theme that Jeremy's talking about is when he talks about this question of representation. And he's got a lot of problems with the uh, way representation is configured, uh, would be configured under, under the new system. Partly he thinks there won't be nearly enough representatives to adequately do the job. Uh, he also thinks there's no way that representatives say from, uh, I think the example he uses is from Georgia, will understand the concerns of, of people in, in Maine or Massachusetts. Um, but one of the biggest problems that he develops here and that you certainly see in some of his New York convention speeches is the question of, of being of the same kind of class of the people that you're representing. And he really argues here and in some of the other essays as well in the Brutus series that this is going to be a government of the, the high-born, the well-born, the wealthy, the landed elite. They're going to look out for their own interests and those of their fellow um, uh, elites. And I think this is another way in which you can argue that Brutus, as Jeremy had done earlier, that Brutus is really prescient about what, what's coming down the pike in, in American history. And I think here with representation, he argues very clearly that this is going to be a government that's run by elites, led by elites, that farmers, that small businessmen, that uh, you know, printers, that other sort of ordinary workers and laborers are not going to have any voice in this government. They won't be truly represented. And that's going to be a major systemic flaw that he sees as well. So Smith is not really a, a have-not himself. I mean, he's a, he's a lawyer. Uh, he's been a businessman at times. He would be sort of solidly middle class, I think, by any kind of definition. Um, but he's not a wealthy person himself. But he is someone who really speaks out for that uh, sort of what today would we call the forgotten middle class. Mm. Yeah, let me point to it. This is um, from uh, Brutus number three, which we don't have. And here, here he says, in this assembly, the farmer, merchant, mechanic, and other various orders of people ought to be represented according to the respective weight and numbers. Um, and, and in this sense, this is a, uh, one of those things in which I, I was making the argument that Brutus was actually uh, the better argument in the future. This is a very modern argument. Uh, the argument that, that we don't think of in terms of social class as much as we do in terms of race and gender, that in order to represent someone, I have to uh, look like or be like uh, mm. that, that person. And um, Brutus gives a version of that argument. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's in some ways, he's sort of making the, the argument for actual representation versus virtual representation right. in a way that you actually have to be a member of a class to represent that class. So farmers can speak for farmers, only merchants can speak for merchants. And the idea that you could virtually represent somebody of whom you are not part of, uh, he just doesn't accept. So in many ways, Brutus is kind of, I guess, reversing that American colonist argument they made against parliament 
in the revolutionary struggles um, and talking, I'm sorry, uh, uh, enforcing the colonial position about that with the need for actual representation, actually having someone in parliament from the colonies and rejecting that notion about virtual representation that the uh, colonists had, had tried out. Um, the Federalists, of course, are making the inverse of that argument, um, th that virtual representation will, in fact, work. So I think Jeremy's example is a very, very good one. So, so you might say that Brutus is uh, an early exponent of identity politics. <laughs> yeah, in some uh, ways. <laughs> Ray Tyler asks whether Brutus counts as a founding father. And if so, can his interpretation be regarded as an original, originalist interpretation? Yeah, so this is a, um, a huge methodological uh, problem for uh, people who consider themselves originalists. Um, I know if you, if you start to talk to originalist lawyers, uh, they will develop or that they will start to in reveal that there's this very complicated methodology they use in order to resolve these questions. Uh, thankfully, I don't, I don't have their problem since I'm not a lawyer. Um, but the, 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 the question really is, is how much interpretive weight do we give to the losers? And um, it's, it's a serious problem. Just if you just take the, the, uh, the question of the necessary and proper clause, which Brutus more or less says, look, they're going to do all sorts of crazy things with it, like give you a Bank of the United States. Um, now, I could say the absence of, um, or, or the voting down of the provision for incorporations during the Constitutional Convention is, is evidence that Congress does not have the power. That, that's Madison's and Jefferson's position. Uh, I could say that, uh, well, it's an implied power, uh, for a variety of reasons, at the Marshall-Hamilton position. But I could also see another argument, and that is that Brutus uh, made the case for it, and because he made the case for it and, and lost, uh, therefore it was part of the understanding of the Constitution, um, even though Brutus wasn't for it. And so it, it, somebody like Brutus is so perceptive, um, in a strange way, uh, uh, makes the Constitution that which he didn't want, by being so clear-eyed about it, if that makes sense. Todd? Yeah, I mean, I think Brutus is certainly a, a founder in the sense that his arguments were, were critical and his actions were critical here in helping to bring New York into the Union. And he's produced certainly some political essays that are uh, as good, I think, probably as nearly anything written in ratification. There's no better judge for that than James Madison, uh, who read the first Brutus, Brutus number we're talking about tonight and then wrote to... Uh, I think it was Randolph, but maybe somebody else, and said basically uh, there's a new pen that has joined the contest and said basically he's very good. He strikes at the heart of the system, and whereas the Federalists would either ignore a lot of anti-Federalist writings or just simply make the charge that most anti-Federalists are narrow-minded and selfish and are trying to preserve their own powers and prerogatives, Brutus cannot be caricatured that way, and so he presents a real problem uh, for the founders. And so because of that, and because Brutus is so active writing these essays and active in the public debates later on, Federalists have to answer him and respond to him. And I think it's out of that the debate, the dialectic that emerges from the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists that you get the, uh, the beginnings of an understanding of the Constitution. So is Brutus's an, uh, an original interpretation? Um, yes, but obviously there are, there are dozens of those. So the idea of speaking of 
a single meaning of the Constitution or a single originalism or a single interpretation uh, obviously is very difficult as as the um, we didn't have to wait long until the bank debate over the, the bank and its constitutionality to find two people who had been in Philadelphia, Hamilton and Madison, coming down on very different sides. So, you know, which one of those is the originalist view? Uh, I would argue, I think most historians would argue that there is no the single original originalist view. But I think if we're going to think broadly about the ideas in play and the debates at the time of the convention and in, in the first government, that Brutus's views, for all the reasons Jeremy spelled out, are tremendously important and certainly get echoed in later debates, uh, even that Brutus is not part of himself. Let, let's uh, sort of look at this argument a little bit more closely. I, I think it's fair to say that Brutus one falls into two parts. The first part is establishing that, in fact, uh, the Republic being proposed under the, the proposed constitution is a consolidation. It can no longer be called a, a, a confederation of states. And then secondly, that what is being proposed is actually impossible, that, an extended, that, that a, a republic such as that which is being put forward cannot exist in a territory as extensive as the United States. Let's look at the first part uh, uh, to begin with. What would what you say are the, are, the, are the key elements of this argument that, that, that the Constitution represents a complete consolidation, to use his words? Well, I mean, just um, in part, I think he argues that, the, that eventually the states are going to become absorbed over time because they're going to lose their taxing power and they're going to lose it because the national government is going to basically soak up all the available tax revenue. And I think this is an interesting argument that Brutus makes and some other anti-federalists made as well, which is that if the Constitution's ratified, things won't fall apart the next day. This will be a gradual process of losing of consolidation and along with that, a loss of liberty. And I think for, for him, the question of consolidation is, as we noted earlier, so crucial because that's the one from which everything else is really going to flow. The government powers, the taxing powers, the, the, the loyalty of the people, because the government will have so many things they can do, good or bad, is going to be drawn to this national consolidated government, and the states and localities will sort of fall away, and this will become one giant republic, uh, which again, um, he argues, as did, did many others, simply is not practical. Okay. Yeah, so I, I um, agree with all that. I, I mentioned, uh, just, just to answer um, your question, I mentioned before, the necessary and proper clause. Uh, another another part of this argument, the way it works, would be the judiciary, and um, the second or the, the final third of Brutus's essays are in the judiciary, and that's where he really demonstrates his his, his clarity. You see it uh, here. Um, just uh, there's a, a preview of it when he talks about for a paragraph, mm -hmm. and the basic point uh, you can get in the preview is that. Um, Federal judges cannot be trusted to police whatever this boundary is between state and nation. So for one, the boundary is not, not, not good. For two, whatever boundary there is, it's, going, it's not going to be enforced because the, the people in charge of enforcing it are going to be officers, that is to say, creatures of the federal government. And so their, their ambition and their honor is going to be tied up in the ambition and the honor of, of, of the national government. And so to put it in, in, in frank terms, uh, if you read Brutus, you shouldn't be all that surprised when Justice John Roberts uh, decides that Obamacare 
uh, can proceed uh, because, um, after all, as a creature of the national government, ultimately federal judges want to enhance the national government's power because it enhances um, uh, their own power. Um, and um, as Roberts probably saw directly from Brutus, the power to tax is unlimited, right? There is no limit uh, to, to the power to tax, right? And so anyway, I think, I think that's another, another crucial piece of this argument is that you can't trust federal judges because federal judges are going to wake up every morning thinking about how much they love the federal government. <laughs> I've got a couple questions um, about uh, from participants about how this was received and and why the uh, the Federalists won the debate. I, I want to hold off on getting to that for a moment until we can complete a, a, a or go a, a bit more into the into the an analysis of the argument. Um, we've talked about the first part of Brutus where he establishes that the Republic really does represent a complete consolidation. And even if the states exist in the short term, their long-term prognosis is not good. Uh, let's look at the other hand, uh, at the other side of the equation or the second half of this, where he talks about the extended Republic being in fact an impossibility. And, and for this argument, uh, Brutus relies heavily on the writings of Montesquieu. What can you tell us about, uh, about the Baron de Montesquieu? Yeah, so I'll take it. Um, the, he's, he's, first of all, um, he is uh, the most cited of the philosophers for early Americans, at least uh, during the um, ratification period. So, so if, if John Locke is the philosopher of the revolution, you might say Montesquieu is the, is the philosopher behind the, the Constitution. I think that might be understating it. I, I tend to, 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 to see Locke have been even more influence. But anyway, he's, he's certainly the most cited. And um, Montesquieu's great uh, intellectual concern is, is the Confederacy. And the Confederacy arises to solve a practical problem. And the practical problem is that a republic has to be small, but republics exist in the world of monarchies. And since monarchies can be big, monarchies can beat up on tiny republics. And so the solution to that um, international relations dilemma is um, the Confederacy, so for uh, republics to join like-minded republics in a kind of defensive alliance, uh, so they're united externally, but, but separate internally. And now that raises all sorts of complications. Those complications are in large part what Montesquieu is writing about. But what permeates the whole thing, and this arguably goes all the way back to antiquity, is the assumption that Montesquieu holds, and that is a republic has to be small. And Brutus really does a nice job of, of laying out the logic of, of that assumption. Mm -hmm. So you would yeah. have, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Todd. I was just going to say, I, I agree with all that. And I think, again, the, what we see with Brutus and part of what makes this such a compelling essay, but also a very difficult one for Federalists, is that it's very practical. Brutus basically says he doesn't call them names. He doesn't accuse them of, of doing terrible things. He doesn't suggest that they have some ulterior motives, really. He simply says, most of all, this new system won't work, and then lays out a series of reasons practically why he thinks that's not the case. So it's a very challenging argument. We can see, I think, why Madison was impressed by it, but also really troubled by it, because he knew that Brutus um, had a very difficult point to, to, to refute in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Surely, if you looked around uh, at the actual existing republics of the 18th century of Montesquieu's time, 
you wouldn't have found any that were large. Venice, uh, maybe uh, Genoa, uh, the individual Dutch, the individual republics that made up the Dutch Republic, the Swiss cantons, which were more a confederation than than a uh, than, than any kind of centralized republic. Uh, okay, good. So, um, so this is Montesquieu's position, saying that there is there is no historical example of a successful extended republic. That, in fact, if you could look at the example of the Roman Republic, but once the once the Roman Republic expanded, it ceased to become a republic. Let's talk then about uh, about the response to this. We've got a few questions that I think we can weave together. Uh, Sarah Margaret Porter asks, how popular was Brutus I on its publication? Did it enjoy as wide a circulation as the Federalist Papers? And uh, uh, Shailen, I don't I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, says, please discuss the disadvantage that Brutus and the Anti-Federalists had in opposing the proposed Constitution with lengthy criticisms and no real organized alternative solution. Mm-hmm. Well, I can take the first one. Um, Brutus and the Federalists both are largely written for a New York audience, and that's largely where they're they're published. I mean, the Federalist, until it gets published in volume form later on, uh, book volume form, um, doesn't really have much wide circulation. I mean, it, too, is passed around, uh, sent from friend to friend. So the newspaper publication data doesn't tell us the total extent of who all is reading it. Um, but it, it's it's not published much, and it's certainly not published much outside of New York. The same thing is true for Brutus. Um, I just checked in the documentary history of the ratification of the Constitution project, which has all these statistics. Um, Brutus one was published in the newspapers only four times: uh, one in New York, one in uh, I think it was Massachusetts, uh, maybe two in Massachusetts, one in New York, and one in Pennsylvania. So it's not widely circulated at all. Uh, although there's some more private circulation there as well. And as a general rule, anti-Federalist stuff was never as widely circulated as the Federalist materials were, mostly because Federalist editors and printers, mostly because newspaper editors and printers were Federalist, supported the Constitution for a variety of reasons, and there simply were not that many vehicles for the anti-Federalists. The two places that's an exception where the anti-Federalists sort of had a press that was viable would be New York City, where Smith wrote, uh, and Philadelphia, where there are a couple of anti-federalist pr- printers there closely connected to the New York anti-federalists. But they sort of read as consistent um, sort of asymmetric disadvantage when it came to getting their stuff circulated. So the public reaction to Brutus, um, there were a number of essays written against him by the federalists. Uh, Palladio Webster or Palatia Webster, however you pronounce his name, uh, wrote one of the most famous sort of an address to Brutus. Um, but for the most part, the federalists take up his arguments Indirectly, they they respond to his ideas without necessarily responding to Brutus one. I see. Jeremy. Yeah. So this to answer Shailen's question on strategic um, dilemma for for anti-federalist, and so on the one sense it's absolutely right, and let, let's call this the, the the problem of the coalition of the no. Um, that is, the, the 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 people against it need to have an alternative in order to to uh, win. Um, this is this is what Madison argues. I think it's Federalist uh, 38 and and, and 40. Um, he 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 compares the anti-federalists to um, your friends. Uh, if you go to the doctor and the doctor says you're sick, do X, and then you go tell your friends, and your friends say, No, your doctor's crazy. That's not going to fix it. Um, 
that obligation is uh, on your friends not to criticize the doctor's, um, you know, treatment plan, but to come up with an alternative on their own, right? And so that, that's how he describes the anti-federalist. On the other hand, let me, let me push back against this and, 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 and say that if you think of not the, the, the problem of the coalition of the no, but instead the coalition of the not yet, then you can see that there actually is a tremendous strategic advantage that they're enjoying. And that strategic advantage is all they have to do is say, look, the crisis is bad, but it's not all that bad. Um, what we really need is a second convention. Uh, the first convention was a good start, but it's got all these problems. So reasonable people or moderates can agree, why don't we just uh, have a second convention? We'll have a proper uh, discussion of it. And after all, what's the harm in more deliberation? Mm-hmm. And if you think about it that way, the Federalists are actually at a tremendous disadvantage because they have to make the case not only for uh, the Constitution as opposed to no alternatives, but for the Constitution as opposed to more discussion. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 once you think of the prospect of more discussion as, 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 as an end game, then all of a sudden the anti-federalists seem like they've got a pretty good shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very good. So, it, so then to what do we attribute the fact that the anti-federalists lose? Um, in, in, in my view, um, the, the, there's a tremendous... Um, uh, event that happens in Massachusetts when Massachusetts uh, goes towards recommended amendments rather than necessary amendments or required amendments. Mm-hmm. And that allows the Bill of Rights to uh, proceed forward, but it doesn't require that everybody agree on what those Bill of Rights are going to be. So therefore, there's going to be some outlet valve by which, uh, uh, in which criticisms might be allowed to um, uh, take place and might be able to correct the Constitution. We all know that Bill of Rights doesn't become that. Bill of Rights becomes a rather innocuous statement of rights that everybody more or less agrees with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the combination of, 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 of the Massachusetts uh, plant with, uh, I think, Madison's uh, eventual uh, recognition that um, of the, the tackle importance of that eventually takes away the, 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 the best argument the anti-federalists have, which is we got to have a Bill of Rights, and so let's delay. Mm-hmm. After that, it's the momentum towards ratification, which puts individual states at a strategic disadvantage. And, um, you know, back to the New York problem, can we really uh, live outside this union? Yeah, that's really key, I think, because, again, as, as Jeremy knows, the um, initial choice was basically take this or nothing. Take the Constitution as drafted to Philadelphia, vote, vote it up or down. And that could only get the Federalists so far. And when they sort of take all the available low-hanging fruit in the early conventions in Delaware and Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Georgia, they win those very easily. But they get to Massachusetts, where there's a very powerful current of critics against the Constitution, and they're not going to be swayed by the same arguments or the same uh, show of brute force that worked elsewhere or was working in the newspapers. So there's got to be some mechanism to create a kind of middle ground and a room for compromise. And so I think it does create a third position, the possibility of recommended amendments. It gives people, instead of the option of yes or no, it gives them that crucial third option of saying yes, but with recommended amendments. And that's a way to sort of win over a number of anti-federalists who then have the opportunity 
um, at least in theory, to shape the Constitution, to move it in different directions. And even though the Federalists are dead set against a second convention, because they think any, any Constitution produced by a second convention would be far less sweeping and consolidated than the one they drafted in Philadelphia, they are certainly willing to allow recommended amendments. And as Jeremy notes, that's what Madison ends up um, weaving together very skillfully in the first Congress. Though interestingly, the Bill of Rights is, unless I'm forgetting, the Bill of Rights is one thing that, that Brutus doesn't talk about. Now, the supplemental readings, George Mason's criticism of the Constitution and Sentinel One both emphasize the lack of a statement of, uh, statement of rights, but, but Brutus does not. Um, we've got a, a, a couple of participants who would like to bring in uh, Federalist 9 and Federalist 10. Uh, to what extent are these written in, in direct response to, uh, to Brutus, and how effective are these, do you think? Go ahead, Jeremy. Yeah, so um, I, I can't I can't speak to to, the, to nine in, 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 in advance. Uh, I'm trying to do, do the dates uh, in my head really quick, but, but I, can't, I can't do it. Uh, as, as far as Madison, um, I, I suspect not not so much because um, he he had ten uh, ready to go. Uh, that was that was his 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 his, his grand idea, and he'd been trying it out, um, you know, a couple times that year already. Um, and so I, I don't think you need Brutus as, as an interlocutor to, to get you Fed 10. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I think Madison, there, there are parts of the Federalist uh, essays that do respond to parts of Brutus. I think it's um, maybe 15 and 23 about standing army and things like that. There are some later ones that refer to, not always by name, but at least indirectly to points that Brutus has raised. So that is a series that you can put Face to those those two series are ones you can put face to face and see some dialogue there. But I, I don't I think Federalist Ten those ideas as Jeremy notes Madison has sort of worked that out for some time, um, and I don't think that that's uh, even though it's published after uh, Brutus One in terms of the chronology I don't think it's it's necessarily a response to it in any sort of new way. Okay. So what else can we uh, can we add about uh, about Brutus? Or perhaps we could go on to one of the uh, one of the other documents, Sentinel One, or uh, or George Mason's criticism. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier, Jeremy, that you thought the most compelling part of Brutus was the uh, the emphasis on uh, the necessary and proper clause that this would create that this would really create a precedent that would be detrimental to the states. Maybe we could talk a bit about the extent to which Brutus's predictions have turned out to be true. Well, um, on, on the one hand, um, that they're totally true in the sense that Hamilton immediately does what, what, what Brutus worried about. Um, and then, and then the 20th century there, there's a whole, whole nother story there. On the other hand, um, one, one, one way you can see it is that, that the 19th century is basically Jefferson and his party sort, sort of uh, sticking close to Brutus's uh, playbook and, and, and sort of more, more concerned about, uh, you know, are, are more, more in line with, with Brutus's perspective than, than the alternative. Um, and and that, that's, you know, I, I, uh, to put it differently, um, what, what I think the great virtue of, of Brutus is, is that Brutus 
insist on having clear markers of authority. And that is when in doubt, you need to show me where the boundary is. Mm-hmm. And then even better, if that boundary is in, da- in danger at, at any all, let's create some sort of supermajority requirement that's going to help us police the boundary. So why not have a two-thirds requirement for, for raising taxes? Why not have a two-thirds requirement to do this, to do that? And so what the supermajority requirements that reveal is where your principles are, according to Brutus, and the absence of one uh, reveals that you actually don't care about protecting the boundary between state and, and federal uh, that nation. So I think that there's something uh, there, uh, and I think that there, there's a, you, you could make the case that the, the, the Jeffersonian or Jefferson political coalition uh, more or less continues the same kind of concern that the Brutus had. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there's um, the, the, the final, the 16th and final Brutus essay is really about separation of powers and the absence of those, those strict boundaries that Jeremy was just talking about. But I think very clearly you can sort of tell that Brutus from essay number one had figured all this out in his head before he started. I mean, he sort of knew where he was going. Thank you for listening to our program about Brutus One. Unfortunately, due to some software problems, it seems that we have lost about the last 12 minutes of the program. We're working to try to recover that, but in the interest of getting the information out there, we decided to post this as is. Hopefully, we'll have those extra 12 minutes stitched onto the back of this, and we'll repost within a few days. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs at TAH.org webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.